Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's episode, we'll be talking all about movie adaptations of graphic novels. In particular, we'll be focusing on American Splendor, a 2003 film from directors Cherie Springer-Brown and Robert Polcini that brings to life Cleveland author Harvey Pekar's decade-spanning autobiographical underground comic series of the same name. I'll be joined by New Haven Review publisher Bennett Graff to talk about what makes for a good and effective uh, graphic novel movie adaptation, about some of the challenges of translating a story from one medium to the other, and about the humble grandeur of four decades worth of comics about the most mundane aspects of Picar's working class Cleveland life. But first, I'm very happy to welcome back to the show Bennett Graff. Bennett is the founding publisher of the New Haven Review and the host of the Listen Here series at the Institute Library. Bennett's last appearance on this program was in May of this year, episode 78, when he came on to talk about literary adaptations, where they focus on John Huston's 1987 adaptation of James Joyce's short story, The Dead. Bennett, it's a pleasure to have you back. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Tom. I love that we have a bit of a, an adaptation series going on with the, uh, your, this, this appearance and your last appearance talking about translating uh, works of literature uh, into movies in various formats of literature. So we'll see what the next episode will be. There is, after all, an Oscar category for this. That there is? For adaptations. Um, so I, I know we spent a, a little bit at the top of the last episode talking about the Listen Here series, this collaboration that you host at the Institute Library with the New Haven Theatre Company. Um, I wonder if you could just give our listeners a little bit of an update on what you've been up to since then, uh, what's new with Listen Here or New Haven Review, any, anything that you'd uh, care to share about since episode 78, what you've been up to? Well, there um, there's very little in the way of changes with respect to the New Haven Review and the Listen Here series since our last, uh, uh, since our last confab. Uh, the, uh, the programs continue uh, as they were. Um, the New Haven Review publishes twice a year, and Listen Here is still uh, the, uh, at least so far, is the third Tuesday of every month. Uh, the only difference this time is we're going to begin in October instead of September. Uh, month's delay is required because uh, I have myself changed my day job and uh that has uh, created a little fluctuation in the scheduling do you know what the stories are going to be for october or a bit too far out it's still yeah. a bit too far out i'm actually still working on them so uh usually it's a it's a mix of uh classical stories classical short fiction if you will and uh, modern short fiction and um so i still have to do some some picking Okay, well, we'll keep our eyes open for the October instance of, of Listen Here. Uh, but before, before we jump into American Splendor, you know, I, I um, said that we're talking about movie adaptations of graphic novels, but I think we need to be a bit more specific in our definitions, maybe at the top of the show, talking about what is a graphic novel and what kinds of graphic novels we're going to be focusing on. Um, so I wonder if, uh, since this was a, an episode idea that you expressed interest in having, um, I wonder if you could share a bit with, when you hear the words graphic novel, what, what does that mean to you? And what, what are the kinds of, uh, kind of illustrated stories that, or adaptations of illustrated stories that we're going to be focusing on today? So um, maybe it would make some sense to take one step back. So why would I have even proposed this idea of talking about graphic novels and their adaptation to movies? First and foremost, of course, this show is about movies. But the second thing is there's always, uh, in, 
in, in suggesting this, of course, there is actually a personal interest, and that personal interest emanates from the fact that as a child, I was a comic book collector, and I collected a lot of comic books, and I still actually have all of these. Uh, it, uh, collecting 1970s and 1980s uh, would have typically been your Marvel and DC universe of materials, um, and graphic novels so we're talking about superman batman superman batman avengers that kind of stuff everything that we see being turned into movies presently um are i have those comic books um at some some run of those comic books during my childhood um and uh what was it that that drew you to those comics as a kid you know uh, the usual things uh i mean one thing is uh, comic books in one sense are the next step if believe it or not, after illustrated children's books, because what happens is they're still illustrated, but the language becomes more sophisticated. And actually the storylines become more sophisticated than your standard children's book. So in some ways, the comic book is actually the natural successor to the illustrated children's book. Um, and when people jump from illustrated children's book to all text novels, in some senses, there's a great big gap that, that is there that the comic book has managed to fill. The other thing is, um, as a comic book collector, I have an interest to a certain extent in comic history. So there are many kinds of comics that eventually get depiction as movies if we think more broadly about visual representations in narrative art, right? So we could be talking about comic strips, Little Orphan Annie becomes the movie, becomes the musical Annie, becomes the movie Annie. We have, um, we have uh, comic books, which are serial publications, um, and then we have the graphic novel, which itself is almost like a much more extended comic book, uh, more pages, larger storyline. Uh, there were efforts at that kind of thing in that DC Marvel era of the 70s and 80s it would be called a giant-sized edition, but it would actually be an extended storyline. Um, and one of the most interesting quirks in that comic book history is the introduction the re the reimagining of X Men, which became a huge box office success, started off as a giant sized issue where the original four X Men, who were quite uninteresting characters, was suddenly joined by many interesting characters, um, and they realized that they needed a much larger comic book space to tell the story, in which they took this original four white characters and they added characters from Russia, from Africa. They actually had a Native American character who died off early, but it was, and it was an amazing gesture. The comic book's worth a tremendous amount of money, but it, it was a novel in you a know, sense. I, I think that uh, you know, anyone who goes to the movies with some regularity or pays any attention to movies today is probably aware of this, you know, this continuous expansion of the superhero cinematic universe of, right. of what you're you're talking, uh, whether it be the X Men movies or maybe most prominently the Marvel movies. Uh, we have the the super Superman and Batman movies. I mean these these figures have really emerged in the past uh, 10, 15, 20 years as the hallmarks of twenty uh, first century kind of Hollywood cinema. These are the the biggest names and biggest types of movies, biggest productions uh, in the theaters. And I'm so glad that you started off by talking about how um, in many ways comics uh, are a uh, kind of stepping stone from, a logical stepping stone from children's books. Because I think in the, the movies and comics we're going to be talking about today, um, very much, especially th these comic book artists from the 1960s and 1970s, were very much trying to push back against the idea that 
that comics could only be the next step uh, from a, a children's book. The idea that they had to right. be focused on uh, fantastic stories of escapism, uh, had to focus on absolute good and absolute evil and shiny costumes and superpowers, uh, but had the uh, kind of narrative and artistic capacity of of literature, of kind of psychological exploration of characters. Right. So in the uh, in the development of comic books, we actually have even in their early iterations, there are... Uh, so first of all, we know that comic books represent a marketing endeavor. So the target audience were what we t- call today, what we now know as the YA audience that buys Harry Potter in droves. That's the audience of the comic books, in a sense, of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Who is actually their buyer? Their buyer is usually a teen, someone old enough to go to a candy store, pick something up, but that comic book itself has to be sufficiently adventurous or uh, sensationalistic. There were horror comics. Uh, Some of them uh, were quite licentious without necessarily being pornographic. Um, And the appeal is to young adults going into becoming young men, um, sometimes young women. It depends. The comics would kind of begin to... Uh, move in different directions. So Archie comics, for example, which were more humorous and actually generally heavily romantic, were more girl oriented. See the um, the from so from what I understand about, I did a little bit of reading on on the history of the development of, of this type of uh, kind of comics for adults. Seems to be what we're yeah. we're getting towards, and uh, a very important uh, kind of censoring force in the history of American comics. I forget the name of the authority, but there was a censorship body, maybe the Comic Book Code yeah. or Comic yeah, Book Authority, co- yeah. that seems quite analogous to the the motion picture, uh, the uh, the Hayes Code, the kind of censorship that Hollywood imposed on itself for most of the middle of the twentieth right. century, and starting in the nineteen sixties with uh, figures like Bob Crumb, who comes up quite prominently in the story of American Splendor, uh, this kind of fusing of um, comic books, almost as it, sometimes an extension from the kind of more pornographic, titillating elements of, of 1950s uh, kind of horror comic books. You have characters and you have authors experimenting with psychedelic drugs, uh, appealing to the hippie counterculture uh, and the uh, the kind of youth counterculture and trying to ingrain some of this experimentation, some of this licentiousness uh, into, and also very sharp uh, kind of social critique and social satire into the comics. Right. I, I wonder if we could start to, um, I, I'm, I'd love to hear, well, even before we get to, um, is there anything else you want to say about this this type of adult comic book, how, how it came into being, sure. how you came to it? Well, just an interesting kind of sidebar on this one, which is interesting, and, and Picar kind of enters this universe, which is, so one of the main issues about any sort of censorship that affects the written word is the way you stop it is through the post. That's how, I mean, that's how Ulysses by James Joyce gets kind of stopped in its tracks because you can't mail bad stuff by the post and, and federal law gets imposed very quickly. One of the interesting things about um, the quote-unquote undergr- underground comics that was developed for more adult audiences is that they weren't sold in candy stores or in um, even comic shops. They were sold in paraphernalia shops. That's how they could kind of maintain their flow of distribution um, and stay a bit under the radar and not get caught in kind of the Comics Code Authority uh, um, where they would just grab all the boxes and just incinerate them, essentially. 
And as we're going to talk about, Harvey Pekar, a, a working class Jewish man, a file clerk at the VA in Cleveland, uh, is very much a uh, kind of central figure in right. this development of comic books for adults. Uh, I want to say that you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHH LP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and we're talking with uh, New Haven Review editor and uh, comic book collector uh, and <laughs> and uh, graphic novel enthusiast, perhaps, if I may be so bold, sure. uh, Bettit Graf. Um, let's, before we jump into America's Splendor, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the the problems and the challenges of, of translating uh, this type of graphic novel that we've kind of broadly defined, the non-superhero, non-fantasy sure. comic books for adults. Uh, that are maybe more interested in narrative experimentation, in psychological realism. Uh, what what are some of the challenges that you see in translating uh, these types of uh, illustrated narratives to the screen? Well, the biggest challenge, in some ways, is um, it's it's a rather unusual challenge. So let's say you're going from, as we did in our last show, going from pure text to um, to visual to moving image um you have to a certain extent a lot more latitude to work with the material and um while someone can say that's not how i saw it in my head uh, a director's argument could be yes but that's just in your head comics are different comics actually are the storyboards that are sometimes generated for a movie um and we know that these storyboards are quite common not only for animated movies, storyboards are common for animated movies. We know they're common for anime movies, but now even with so many high tech, um, you know, green screen movies. So even the Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, Jackson's Lord of the Rings had to have much of it storyboarded um, in order to depict it, even though it is a kind of live action movie. So stor- so a comic book does a lot of storyboarding, and that issue th- that sometimes comes up of, it doesn't look like what I imagined, or in this case, it doesn't look at all like what I saw becomes more obvious in a way. And the other thing is that the the director, the cinematographer, the editor, they all have to rethink as well how, first they have to make one key decision. Do they wish to, in a sense, represent the art in some manner of that comic book? If not in obvious depictions as American Splendor does, and we'll get to that, but even just in tone, in coloring of the movie? Um, Or do they want to forego that altogether and tell the movie using really, focusing really on how movies get made rather than trying to reproduce the visual tone, if you will, of the comic book itself? Yeah, I think you've hit upon exactly the challenge that I find most interesting uh, in bringing graphic novels to the screen, which is how does a filmmaker... Um, manage to capture the intent of the visual style of the graphic novel without um, mimicking it to the point of the irrelevance of the movie. If you're just going to bring the exact same animated style to the film, um, then I would almost question why why not just stick with the graphic novel? Why why does this need to be moved over into a slightly different format? Um, But you, so to maintain both the actual kind of visual aesthetic elements of the style of the comic book without being completely beholden to the the exact 
like mode of presentation uh, in the comic book one. And just talking, I mean, I'm so glad that you brought up storyboards because that is quite a parallel between how movies are made and how these graphic novels actually look. But I think one key difference is, you know, on a, on a graph in a comic book, you have, uh, you know, 10, 12, 16, however many panels on a single page, you're able to kind of look at these simultaneously, even though you're just focusing on one at a right. time, uh, you, you take in an entire scene kind of at a glance, whereas movies primarily operate in just a, a, you know, a single image presented at a time. And so I think how to translate both that kind of mul- multiplicity of images presented at once, but also comic book uh, writers and authors can play very much with uh, how frames are connected on a page. Right. Um, Harvey Picard does this all the time, or at least the artist Picard works with, where you have um, kind of giant stylized objects connecting frames across the right. page, whether a pencil or a spoon. I mean, these are yeah. mundane things, but there's something being communicated in the way that you know editing is such an important tool in the filmmaker's right. vocabulary. Comic book authors have a slightly analogous tool in that they can connect frames with objects that kind of overlay on top of the frame. Well, so comics are, so in that sense... And then, of course, the di- the speech bubbles. I right. just wanted to bring up the way right. that the speech bubbles kind of physically frame and partake in each, you know, right. this is a silent medium because you're reading, and they shape the, the visuals in a way that um, a movie can't really rely on subtitles right. to do. So in one sense, what, what I had said was a comic book seems to be, comics seem to be the extension of illustrated children's books, but they also live as the place between um, still classic art. So a Rembrandt, which is a single depicted scene, and the movie, which is a fully moved, you know, which is narrative in movement. Um, whereas in still art, you have to infer the narrative. The closest thing you get to that in even classical art is the series that William Hogarth would have done of a series of prints telling the story of someone's decline. But it's that is almost the closest thing you have to comic strips before there are comic strips where someone is trying to use still images to convey not only narrative but narrative movement from image to image and you're right that one of the things that comics do and it's actually one of the reasons i i, I had brought in props and of course on the radio you can't reveal we props. have facebook live though so feel free to facebook show live, those books to so, the cameras so i don't know if this can be seen but i will try to put it up Yes, I think so. Uh, this is called Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. And this book is, let's see, I don't know which way to face this, but anyhow, it doesn't matter. Um, this book is a wonderful, wonderful um, explanation of how does comic art work as comic art. And Scott really kind of took a big step back and say, I want to think about this aesthetically, philosophically, what does it do to our psychological absorption of narrative when comic artists do various things? Make the features of a face fuzzy, um, lower the contrast in the scene, or as you were describing, break the panel, or sometimes throw away the panels altogether. Um, while reading parts of American Splendor, m- much of I, I took uh, the new American Splendor anthology and looked at that. Um, panel breaking is is relatively rare, um, but when it happens, and sometimes it does happen, it can be mind bending um, at times. And there's no way a movie can even capture that. But you know, maybe the, these two, uh, the way that panels are strung together in comic books and graphic novels is more similar than I thought to how movies are constructed. Because you know, there's so many different ways to edit between images and scenes, right? You you have uh, 
dissolves and fades yep. and, and wipes and you know there there are Absolutely. all of these different ways to, to cut between image to image and now usually most filmmakers who are most interested in story are not trying to draw attention to the way that uh that images transition from one to right. the other but they always have i mean that's the beauty of of movies there, there's always some kind of subconscious impact on the audience of how these things are strung together um let's let's get to let's get to harvey picar sure. because i think this is a good setup for um, for one of the most unusual uh, comic book heroes that I certainly have ever read about. Um, Picard, the, the way that I think about him, for anyone familiar with the Institute Library's uh, semi-regular series Amateur Hour, I think Harvey Picard would probably be the perfect, even though he is no longer alive, he'd be the perfect subject of an Amateur Hour, and that this is a man uh, who... Uh, was born in and grew up in, and as far as I know, spent his entire life in Cleveland. Uh, he's a Jewish man, working class, son of a grocer, worked for th- over 30 years uh, as a file clerk in the uh, Cleveland Veterans Hospital. Um, and during his downtime at work, <laughs> during night times, during his weekends, he um, s- produced and self-published this comic book series called right. American Splendor that was an autobiographical comic book series, one that's one quite unusual, that it's about Harvey Picard as opposed to creating some fantastical character. Another very unusual aspect about this series, which ran from 1976 to, I think the, the last issue was 2008, but the 70s, 80s, early 90s were the kind of heyday of this series. Um, another very unusual aspect is that Harvey Picard, you know, could not draw to save his life. Nope. <laughs> and so he worked with all of these now very well-regarded and highly recognized and celebrated um, comic book artists from that flourishing of adult comic books that we were talking about earlier in the show, most notably Bob Crumb, um, yep. but also uh, I think Gary Dumb is the name. He worked with Alan Moore. Frank Stack. Alan, Alan Moore, Moore completely surprised me. Yeah. Um, but so, so this is so, and and the last bit of setup. This series focused so it was autobiographical and it focused on the most mundane aspects of Harvey Picard's life. It focused on his, you know, working as a file clerk and his relationship with his colleagues, uh, losing his car keys, uh, you know, traveling on the bus, walking yep. around Cleveland, um, and also, you know, the more hor- you know horrifying or dramatic elements of mundane life, um, dealing with cancer. Uh, getting married, divorced, married, divorced again and again, and find, mm-hmm. fi- you know, finding the right woman, worrying about women, uh, cleaning dishes. These yep. were the subjects of Harvey Picard's uh, autobiography. And a uh, central tenet of this work is that the most ordinary life is complex enough as it is uh, right. and is worthy of the, you know, most introspective artistic treatment as, um, well, I don't know if Superhero gets that. I, you probably know better than I if, if he gets... Uh, the type of treatment that Harvey Picard wanted to see, but certainly Picard, a great admirer of um, Theodore Dreiser and Catherine Mansfield, yep. and also a lot of 19th century uh, Victorian novelists. That's just listeners to provide, because I w- was not familiar with Picard before we started yep. talking about this um, this movie. So all of that said, um, how how did you uh, come to Picard, and why did you want to talk about this movie? Um, I saw this movie when it came out in 2003 in the theater, um, and... I didn't know Picard's work, and I hadn't even, and I, and since I was not a David Letterman fan, I wasn't even aware of the Letterman appearances. Um, so I saw it with a friend who is a, a big movie buff, along with me. And um, when we were done seeing the movie, I was just—I basically walked out the theater and said, "I think this is one of the best movies for me, at least, that I've seen in years." Um, partly because I think it is a very good movie. Um, because it's a very interesting movie, and also because, for me at least, it also resonated very, very deeply. Um, it kind of 
for what I want in a movie sometimes, it hit exactly all the things I wanted to see hit. Uh, and, and it's and I can describe what those things are as we get into it. Well, I, I feel like I, I can't not ask you <laughs> what what that is. So maybe let's 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 get into it. Um, why did it res? And I should say this is a movie from two thousand three um, that is an adaptation of not one particular issue of American Splendor, but rather the entire series and really Harvey Pekar's life. And it stars Paul Giamatti, New Haven native, right. uh, as one of the manifestations, maybe the most important one of, of Harvey Pekar, maybe second most important. But so uh, why did this resonate with you so deeply? Well, just to add one more thing, the movie also includes Harvey Pekar, which was an important component of it as the, uh, the, as the filmmakers were thinking it through. Um, I admire any movie that can depict uh, ordinary life in such a way that you can't help but watch and almost appreciate even the ordinariness. Now, the movie itself isn't an ordinary movie. It's not, for example, a good example of a movie that I actually enjoyed years earlier was The Accidental Tourist. And I've spoken to people say, what's there to like about that movie? Almost nothing happens. And I said, yes, but the way they make nothing happen is just pretty remarkable as opposed to other movies I've seen where nothing happens and really nothing did happen. It was quite a dull film. So there's just something magical in that depiction of, the way I've described it is, it's a movie about small things. And if a movie does, and if a movie has as its topic small things, and somehow through the medium of that movie making, conveys that those small things are still small, but they're also very large things, that to me is a tremendous success. I've seen movies where they convey small things and that's all they ever remain. And that, and those movies just are in fact dull. And then of course there are movies that are do just large things like our superhero movies and in the literary term for those would be pathetic, which is tempest in a teacup, a mountain out of a molehill, meaning a, 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 it's a big nothing burger. Boy, a lot's going on. And in the end, what was this movie about? Oh, eh, not much. Not much to that. So I think that one of my my favorite scenes in the movie and the one that so perfectly encapsulates the success of the filmmaker's adaptation of Harvey Pekar's work comes in the first third when Harvey first meets the woman who's going to become his third and final wife and and life partner, a a woman named Joyce Brabner, uh, played in the movie by Hope Davis. At least her Mm -hmm. actress version is Hope Davis. Um, she has been communicating with Harvey via mail because she's such a big fan of his comics. Uh, and she decides to pay him a somewhat spontaneous visit in Cleveland uh, and is incredibly apprehensive about what Harvey looks like. Right. Because she has heard, you know, Harvey is someone who is, uh, he's such a talker, he's such a thinker. And we, we ca- it's very easy to wrap your your head around what Harvey's voice sounds like. And, and we'll get to the actual right, oral quality right. of the voice in a second. But she's she's able to you know understand maybe a bit more about how he thinks, but she has no idea how he looks. And the reason she has no idea is because Harvey works with dozens of right. artists to illustrate him in the series. So when she gets, this is the scene that I so love, when she gets to the Cleveland bus station, right. she looks around apprehensively and she sees three different potential versions of Harvey. Right. And they're all straight from the, well, I don't know if they're actually pulled from the comics, but yeah. they're meant to replicate the style of different comic book right. authors. You have the R. Crumb version, which is this hairy, like, sweating animal. You have a suave intellectual with a book. And then you have a, you know, curmudgeonly, kind right. of cockeyed, skeptical, uh, 
slouchy man, um, all drawn in black and white, you know, intermixed in this, you know, otherwise uh, traditional, um, right. you know, live action setup. You have the the different animated versions of Harvey Picard kind of taunting her. Uh, and then the actual Harvey Picard, at least as played by Paul Giamatti, shows, shows up. up right. And I think that this year, the comics are so interested in the many different ways that Harvey looks uh, and the ways that his the different facets of his personality manifest themselves visually in that when he's explosive, he's the arc rum, right. you know, when he's contemplative, he's a, he's a different guy. And I think that scene so perfectly in a filmmaking, you know, way captures uh, maybe the most important aspect of the series for me, which is the many different parts of right. Harvey Picard. There were two things that occurred to me with that scene and other things. So, so, so Picard broke ground because what he did was he generated, uh, I mean, just a little more background, he generated roughly one comic book that would be about 50, 60 pages per year. That was the rate of production because he had a day job and he also financed it himself. Um, and he's and, paying artists, right? And he to, would pay the draw. artists. Um, and so, uh, he, so he ha- and the other thing is he had different artists rotating through the books, sometimes even more than one artist in each of them. So that's actually relatively rare in comic books themselves, unless, of course, you're doing kind of compendiums, which is sometimes what some comic books would emerge as. But he had it literally at the issue level. He had different artists engaging with him. Many of them, I think, of course, were intrigued. That's the whole point of the R. Crumb episode, where he shows R. Crumb his stick figure drawings, and he's very... Uh, this is Paul Giamatti across from the, the actor playing uh, um, Robert Crumb, and he's very, very nervous about the response he's going to get to it. And uh, the, Robert Crumb basically is looking at it and kind of, you know, bobbing his head to the left and right and, you know, maybe smirking or smiling a little bit. And then in the end, he says, this is pretty good. This is pretty good. In fact, I'd like to draw this. Doesn't ask for pay even. So it's unclear if Crumb even got paid. And, you know, that interaction has such high stakes because Crumb is one of the few people in Harvey's life who Harvey has immense respect for and is also who Harvey has trouble reading. I think Crumb is a kind of inscrutable and very strange right. man. Also, And also Crumb is a full-time artist. That's a very key point. One of the things that comes up in American Splendor in the interactions when he's on with Letterman, Letterman says, why don't you just give it all up and just do the comic book, surely you must be doing well enough. Since I've been an editor who used to work with musicians as writers, I would always say to them, and, and usually they were professors of music, I would say, don't give up your day job for writing this book. It is definitely not going to carry you. Um, so actually, I think many of the artists themselves also had day jobs, but Crumb was an exception. He actually was a full-time artist, and he managed to make a go of it, which is pretty rare. Um, and also, f- among the underground artists... He was the one who was actually get who was kind of at the top of that crest of a relatively small crest, but he was kind of riding it. And also, I mean, he has recognition, he has money, he has a full you know gainful employment. Also, Crum is an incredibly sexually active person, and Picard I think spends much of his time, maybe not in this movie, but a lot of the early years of the American Splendor series are focused on his just his immense sexual frustration uh, and his, yeah. you know, the kind of uh, how incommensurate his 
slovenly, somewhat narcissistic, but also kind of indifferent to appearance, that, that attitude right. in his life, how that makes it very difficult for him to actually, you know, be attractive to a woman and also connect with a woman and get her to trust him enough to right. spend time but, with him. But that becomes part of the energy behind the, the, um, the stories he manages to tell because his is a story. So one of the, th- so one of the other things that's kind of interesting about different depictions of him uh, so uh, when I when I saw that scene, the first thing that occurred to me I said, was, first of all, it was like watching an old version of Match.com because here is this woman who has his personality of sorts from the comic books, but she doesn't know what she looks like. And I remember speaking to friends who've gone on dating sites and they said, you know, one of the worst things about it is people lie, especially how they look. They lie about their weight. They lie about their height. They lie about all these things. And she's walking kind of into this situation. And it, one thing is clear is, is as much as she kind of loves his comic books and obviously isn't turned off by the personality depicted in those comic books enough to come out to Cleveland from Philadelphia, where she's coming from, looks do seem to matter a little bit to her. And she's definitely unnerved about like, what am I going to walk into? The Robert Crumb illustrations of him in particular, the ones that make her the most nervous. And uh, the, you know, Harvey, so... American Splendor strips don't often end in punchlines. And I think that was one of the aspects of his comics that made them so uh, unusual, if not revolutionary, in that they were not leading to satisfactory denouements. This scene is one of the few that has a, if not a punchline, a a somewhat ambiguous, funny ending in that, you know, it's maybe the best best meet cute in a romantic comedy. And that not only is she, you know, terrified about what this man's going to look like but the first thing he says to her is just to let you know i have a vasectomy <laughs> yeah that's right that's right <laughs> and then he walks off um can we talk about the um i, I want to talk about some of the aspects of the adaptation that didn't quite work for you um but maybe first can we you mentioned the letterman sequence and i think the letterman sequence is so important to harvey's life to his work to what he stands for um could you tell did, did did that and it also stands out a bit in that it is his brush is like his brush with a more like celebrity focused popular culture yeah. well it brings together so with that i we should bring together a few things um so one thing is harvey picar is is an unapologetic realist that's one of the points of the whole conversation about naturalism um so the whole jenny gerhart exchange is all about is all about the phenomenon of American naturalism and American naturalism as a phenomenon in American literary tradition, um, especially as practiced by Theodore Dreiser, but inherited by John Dos Passos and by John Steinbeck, was to kind of start removing elements of romance and high drama and depict people as they really live, including their unhappy denouements, right? So he's trying to rec- he's he's bringing kind of hard-bitten realism to this thing. One of the things that happens in that Letterman exchange, at the same time, he needs sales. So uh, the Letterman team has caught on up to Harvey Picar's comics and some words gotten around it. And, and my assumption is the producers have actually looked at some of the material and said, this seems like an interesting character we should bring on. Dave will have some fun with him. Picar agrees to it because for him, he's looking for promotion of the comic books himself for sales. So he has actually a very clear capitalistic interest in this. He's not anti-capitalist, but he is pro-real. And the one place where it begins to rub up against is, you know, at what point does capitalism begin to kind of uh, mystify 
the reality. And what brings him to loggerheads, and that's the big, uh, there's a big breakup scene in a sense between him and Letterman, is um, it's precipitated by the fact that he learns he has cancer, by the fact that Joyce, his wife, has become avidly political. And Picar is generally not, he, he will talk politics, but he doesn't do politics. Um, there's a lot of, in in the in the stories. There's a lot about the Oliver North episode and the Iran Contra affair. So he and and the most important thing is he realizes that he, one he's not getting sales, and in addition he feels as if he's getting co-opted. So he's becoming kind of the clown for Litterman to kind of work over. And in the end, uh, the the, the beneficiary is Letterman, not him. So if Harvey Picar is uh, not necessarily anti-capitalism, he is intensely anti-yuppie. And I think yeah. that, and I think <laughs> yeah, that Letterman, Letterman embodies everything of the kind of yuppie 1980 stereotype that Picar finds uh, abhorrent, uh, in right. that this is a man who is, you know, he's, he's very fit, he's very attractive, uh, he has a lot of money, and money is, you know, more of an end than a means for him. Um, money is always a means for Picar, even when he, you know, he spends a lot of panels fretting about where the next paycheck is going right. to come from. But it's not in a way that he is worried about the the status that money would bestow upon him, or the. No. <laughs> it's it's not a it's not a greed necessarily. It's certainly an anxiety, but it's a concern about how he's going to continue to fund uh, his own artistic endeavors and also how he's going to support his wife and his family. I think that for Letterman, you know, this is a you know he's flying out to New York. Uh, he's going on the NBC studio and he's not just being co-opted. He's being deliberately humiliated by someone who thinks that he is better than Picar. And this is of course, Picar's framing of the story. It's difficult right. to get Letterman. Although that's one of the innovations of the movie is that, you know, we've mentioned that Harvey Picar, the actual person shows up many times in this movie, um, alongside Paul Giamatti playing him as an actor. One of the instances of documentary footage being incorporated is in this Letterman, uh, maybe not montage, this, this Letterman combat where we actually, we see Hope Davis watching the actual footage right. uh, of actual Harvey Picar right. uh, squaring off against Letterman. And I think that in that, uh, in that conflict, we get a pretty uh, kind of pure distillation of what Harvey is really opposed to and seeks to kind of craft himself in opposition to. Letterman is like the opposite of realism for him. He's someone right. who's bringing on, uh, you know, animal trainers to do funny pet jokes and then bringing on another, a person from the Midwest, a working class guy, right. as if he is a logical next step. He's someone to laugh at and laugh along with. He's a curiosity. Right. And Picard does not want to be a curiosity. I don't think that the movie quite nails that conflict in the way that the, the comic book series does because... I don't think Letterman is enough of an uh, like coherent antagonist in the movie, especially the big Paul Giamatti kind of yelling at Letterman about how he's kowtowing before GE. The the way that the scene is, I mean, I feel like we get so much tension around this kind of person-to-person conflict between Letterman and Picard and what the two represent. And then in that final confrontation sequence, it's just... It's a very odd angle for me. It's from backstage. We only see Picar, uh, and it's him as Giamatti, and right. it, it just it took me out a little bit too much from the like the economic clash that and like the class clash that we saw right. in the series. I don't know, did that generally. That was like the one of the big disappointments in the movie for me. The way that that very important conflict ends up cinematically. Well, um, 
I could almost say that ironically, um, in one sense, you might say it is a failure, you could say, but in, in another sense, that works completely for me. In other words, it's not the most important part to me. It has to be depicted because it creates a certain kind of crescendo element. This is the height of his celebrity, and then he dashes it all on purpose because um, he's a man of principle. Um, but then the story kind of moves on beyond that to the more important stuff. And the more important stuff, of course, the most important component, of course, is the adoption of a daughter, um, which is a huge issue. One of the, so w- w- one of the questions you said to me was there's something that wasn't captured sufficiently well. So one of the interesting things in reading the, reading the comic books and looking at the movie was trying to capture the degree of Harvey's generosity. In the movie, there's a conversation where she says um, he takes a negative look at things that's because he thinks misery loves company and that will sell comics. Um, and whereas Harvey says, you know, Joyce is all sunshine and flowers, which is not entirely true for either of them. But one thing that's actually fascinating in the comics, and it's some of the, some of the stories are great um, in this, and you only get one small sliver of this, and that is the chamomile tea episode, where basically... Um, Joyce has joined Harvey in Cleveland for their first date. And when they go back to his place, she immediately gets, she's had some sort of food poisoning. So she goes into the bathroom, she's heaving, and he basically says, let me get you some tea. How about chamomile? She says, I'm shocked you even have chamomile. And and he said, well, I didn't notice, which is very important. And then he kind of hovers outside the bathroom door with this chamomile tea and in a sense, that's when you sense she sees this is the guy because what he has is a, is, is a certain amount of generosity. But you don't feel that enough. But in, this, in the comics, there's one comic in particular. It's a fantastic story. It's called Lost and Found where they're looking for things. And one of the things that I noticed in the Lost and Found story, it's a story of Harvey P. Carr lost a book. He can't figure out where it is. He has to go hunt for it. She, they find a wallet. All sorts of weird little lost and found episodes. But what was fascinating was, so this is not mentioned in the movie, but she doesn't drive. He drives. And that means he drives her all the time. And in that story, he's picking her up, dropping her off, picking her up, taking her to the travel agents, picking her up from the travel agent, taking her to wherever. And I remember reading the story and thinking to myself, this is a damned nice guy. I mean, he, he will leave work during his lunch hour to get her, to bring her back, and then he will go back to work. He's tremendously generous. And that, I think that is one of the more uh, surprising aspects of Harvey's personality that came through to me, especially through reading the series, and I think uh, it comes through enough in the movie, is that he is not just a, a bitter crank of a man. He's not. You know, and in fact, his, and that I think is really hammered home through how mundane many of the interactions in the comics are. They very rarely involve him screaming at a coworker or uh, chewing some, I mean, occasionally he'll call up, you know, the telephone company and and yell at them for, right. uh, for extorting him uh, through various schemes. But most of the conversations, even with the strangest, uh, you know, 
person, you know, people in his life, uh, they're ones of, you know, pretty calm, uh, kind of endeavors to understand what's going on within him and in this interaction yep. with a person. Uh, the I we're we're running a little low on time, and there there's at least one of two scenes I I want to make sure to talk Please, about. Please go ahead. And that's that's either the opening sequence, yes. um, or the uh, maybe the most climactic sequence, the monologue that Giamatti gives his Picard around what's in a name. Uh, yes. Which which I'm going to leave it up to you, Bennett. Which of those two do you want to talk about right now? Ooh. Either as successful, unsuccessful. I'm not sure your take on those. Let's scenes. Let, let's do the last scene. I understand where we're going with this one. His question is, I got a phone book. When I was when I moved into my first place, and in addition to me, Harvey Picard, there were two more Harvey Picards, and I didn't know who they were. Eventually, he would learn that they were a father and son. There was a Harvey Picard and a Harvey Picard Jr., and they both died eventually. And then he learned that somehow because he works at the VA. Um, but then another Harvey Picard shows up in a subsequent phone book, and the question he's really asking, in the fundamental sense, is. There's another person who has my name, and this this is a, what I came away with. There's another person who has my name. The person who has my name is more likely a very average Joe, just like me. But just because, but but because that person has my name in particular, I want to know something about that person other than their birth date and their death date or their presence of a name in a phone. I'm really curious. I don't care how average that person is. I'd like to know. And that, in a sense, is the story he's telling. Wouldn't you like to know? Because actually, average is pretty interesting and sometimes more interesting. And not merely because it's real, but because, as you said at the beginning of the show, because it's complex. I, I love your interpretation of that. I actually have a slightly different one. And Please. So I'll, sh- I'll share what moved me so much about that scene. Um, one is that... You know, we spoke a little bit about the different visual manifestations of Harvey, both in the movie and in the series. Uh, and I think that this question and the sudden kind of multiplying of Harvey Picard's in Cleveland gets at that notion of what makes me me. Um, Harvey Picard, he recognizes quite an unusual name. Uh, he in actually in the in the comic, which is from uh, episode or uh, the the second install, like the very beginning, second installment of second issue of American Splendor, he talks a bit more about how you know, the uh, derivations of Harvey and Picard and how they're such an odd combination and how it took him a long time to get used to his name. But ultimately, one of his wives told him, you know, this is a really unique name. This is something to be proud of. This is something that you have just for you. And to find out that all of a sudden, this isn't something that Harvey Picard just has in the way that, you know, maybe I, I certainly tell myself this and I imagine a lot of people do when you look in the mirror you think that's that's me this is the way that I look the way that I look is unique to me this doesn't change you know it changes as I age and yet there's still something uh, kind of uh, irreplaceable um, and thoroughly unique about the way I look and the way that I am called and for Harvey Picar, he kind of throws both of those things um, <laughs> to you know he, he exposes them to be not quite as as ironclad as one might think. Right. You're not the only person with your name. You don't look just one way. There are many different aspects of yourself, and there are many different aspects of kind of everyone around you. The name is not necessarily a hard and fast kind of definer of who you are are destined to be or how you're meant to stand right. apart from everyone. It's just another way of exploring the like many complexities within one. And I think the movie captures, you know, movies, if they do anything, uh, 
are, you know, why I still turn to them over uh, television programs is that they have to, you know, they operate on compression. You only have right. an hour and a half or two hours to tell a full story, whereas sometimes you need, you know, 400 pages or 12 right. episodes or, you know, 40 years of comics. Yep. Yep. And what this movie is able to do in that sequence is it shows, you know, this is one of the most important struggles that Harvey has. He finds it in his name. He finds it in the way he looks. He finds it in his relationship to women. But it all comes back to, you know, who is Harvey Picard? Um, there are many different routes into figuring that out, but this was maybe one of the more kind of visually dramatic ways of representation. Right, right, right. And one of the things it kind of points to in telling the kind of stories he does is what makes us what makes us adhere to a story, stick to one. And one thing is it's what we have in common with a character that we are reading, and it's also what is different between us. It's all about commonalities and differences. If a character is not like us at all you build a lot more critical distance. That's why I, you can poo-poo a superhero. There are people who hate com superhero comics. They're like, look, nothing like me at all, not even close, bores the heck out of me. And then there are people who are so like you. That's like I used to tell people, they said, when I did my PhD, they said, why don't you do a PhD in Jewish literature? I said, I'm Jewish. I know all about this already. I don't want to do more about what I already know. I, want, I need difference. So that kind of, he kind of goes very heavily into saying, I'm going to give you a very, very close interpretation of my life, but believe it or not, you're going to both glom onto it and say like, oh, I do that all the time, and Sam, you can say, oh, I'm so glad I am not that guy at the same, you know, both work. I, I wanted to ask one, add one really small quick thing, totally relevant to the show. I don't know if you caught this in the movie, but at some point when he's talking to R. Crumb about the kind of comic book he wants to come up with, I don't know if you caught that. He mentions a specific set of movie influences. Vittorio De Sica. Right. And what and he's, French New Wave. Right, he's talking Italian neorealism on the one hand and French New Wave at the same time as being the main reason for him to do a comic book like no one else has ever done a comic book before. So the inspiration for his neorealism is movies rather than comics. This is not a fair question to ask in just one minute. Well, first I should say... Uh, Harvey Picard's American Splendor series. The, a few of the anthologies are available at the New Haven Free Public Library. Yep. Please check them out. They, you know, I, I really fell in love with this. I don't know if lovable is or unlovable. I don't know if he gets he can be categorized as either. But I, I really got a lot out of this series, and so I, I strongly yep. encourage you to to take a look at some of these uh, issues. The movie, the 2003 movie with Paul Giamatti, is also available at the Free Public Library. So yep. feel free to to take that out. Um, in I'm going to give you one minute. Uh, Bennett, sure. can you tell our listeners maybe one or two other titles in this genre of graphic novel adaptations that you would also point them to that you think uh, are worth checking out? Absolutely. Um, so, uh, with respect to non-superhero, the two that I've actually enjoyed thoroughly are Ghost World um, and Road to Perdition. Um, they're both very, very fine movies, and they're reasonably good graphic novels as well. Um, so, those would work. Um, in the world of fantasy stuff, I mean, Snowpiercer was actually a really great uh, movie version of a, of a good novel. Um, I'm very curious to see what Sandman will look like. Uh, that will be very difficult by Neil Gaiman. That'll be very difficult to accomplish, and I'll be curious to see what the results are. Um, the one movie I want to throw in is actually a, a documentary. And the way that American Splendor functions as a kind of hybrid documentary narrative adaptation of Harvey Picard's life for a more straight-up documentary about uh, a central figure in this movement is uh, Crumb, a 1995 right. documentary from Terry Swigoff, who's also the director of Ghost World. 
Um, so someone who was very interested in this type of uh, kind of graphic novels, comic books for adults. Um, Crumb is, you know, Crumb is for maybe all of the potential but muted eccentricities of Harvey Picar. Crumb is like a very, very strange person and a very unhappy person. And this movie is as much about his two brothers, uh, Charles and, and Maxon, who have you know, are, for lack of a better word, are as screwed up as Crumb in the head, but don't manage to find that artistic outlet in the way that Crumb is right. able to find. Uh, and so they go down two very different routes. But to, to get this uh, this kind of triptych portrait of um, of 1960s counterculture, uh, yeah. of someone who is, you know, an aggressively kind of authentic artist, uh, unconcerned with critical reception and often quite disdainful of it, um, but to see the way that his psychology is represented through yeah. what he draws, it's a very kind of scary. It's it's pretty scary to look at Robert Crumb comics sometimes, even though there's a lot of goofiness to them too. And yeah. I think he saw a lot of the horror in in the satire he was trying to depict. But Crumb is a a really a great psychological portrait via documentary. So, Bennett, what a treat it is to have you on the show as no always. Um, I look forward to the next installment of our adaptation, <laughs> the trilogy. We we'll have to come up with another one. Um, is there any last thing you want to plug? Anywhere people can find out what you do? I guess listen here is a series to look out for in New Haven yeah. Review. Yeah, go to the institutelibrary.org. All right. Uh, you can go to deepfocusradio.com to find links to various movies that we've spoken about today as well as a full archive of over two years of episodes about uh, movies in New Haven. Um, and we will catch up with you uh, next Thursday for another episode.